You're listening to Boss Tone Radio, Talk for Guitar, presented by BossUS.com. Hi, fellow guitarists. I'm Paul Hansen, and I'm your host. This is Boss Tone Radio, and today we've got a really interesting person on the line. Eric Chahansky runs Eric's Guitar Shop. This is a guitar repair shop, which is located just outside of Hollywood, California, in the San Fernando Valley, the heart of the entertainment industry. Eric's clients range from the Jonas Brothers to Linkin Park and just about everybody else. This should be very educational. We're going to learn a lot about guitar care and everything you've always wanted to know about fixing guitars. So without further ado, let's get Eric on the line. Hey, Paul, how are you doing? Eric, man, it's been so long. It's probably been 20 years. Yeah. I remember back in the day when you worked with Jim Kaufman and then Jim Demeter was there. And uh, Dem- Demeter worked on amps, and you guys worked on guitars. Now you run the whole shop now. Is it still in the same location? Um, yes and no. Well, I was working for a guitar company before I went to go work for those two. Uh-huh. And I'm in the same building, but... Right. So we were in unit number 19, and I'm now in 21. But you used to come to me and Jim when, of course, we were over in the corner in number 19. So you worked for a guitar company before you worked with Jim? Yeah, it, did not, it wasn't a big deal, but I think I was 16, maybe 17, and I worked at a record store. Uh-huh. And in the valley here, there was a company called JB Player Guitars. And uh-huh. I was working at the register at this, and I was doing repairs for kids in the neighborhood since I was 12 or 13 years old. So this guy comes up to the counter, and he had a little JB Player button on his shirt. And I'm like, oh, cool, you guys are local. And he goes, yeah, I'm JB. And I just said, give me a job. <laughs> And he said, what do you do? I said, I fix guitars. So he says, come down tomorrow morning. So I went down there, and he had me do something. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I was nervous. Uh-huh. I spent three or four times longer doing it than I should have. And he said, call me tomorrow. So I called him the next day, and he said, you got a job. So I'm not really sure what he looked at or what I actually did. <laughs> but that was like my first job. And then I ran, you know, I ran to Jim Kaufman, and he said, you know, we need a guy. And after a couple of years... He was involved with with a different business, and it was it was really just me running that shop. Right. I think you did all the work on my guitars, and was he building his Sunrise pickups? Yes. Yeah. So he was doing that, and um, and I was doing guitars, and it was, it was great. It was a great opportunity, and it, it led to where I am now. <laughs> and we're we're busy. I've got I got two other guys who work for me. Well, I was wondering about that. Yeah, I got two two guys. I had a guy who was here for 13 years, and then he got married and moved to Indiana. Wow. He was replaced a couple of years ago, and then I have another guy from Japan who's, who's incredible, and he's been here for maybe three and a half, four years now. We're, yeah. we're going crazy, and I, I do 13 hours every day. Oh, my gosh. I looked up on your website. It says a few of your clients are uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Sticks, Tool, Ozzy, Nuno Betancourt, Queens of the Stone Age, Poison, Madonna, Doug Aldrich, John Sykes, John Mayer, Lincoln Park, Foreigner, Don Felder, Mar- Mars Volta, Lip- Limp Biscuit, Nine Inch Nails, Joe Walsh. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's just a few of them. Um, any, any guys stand out over the years? Do you have any interesting stories? Um. Yeah, it's stories, funny stories. I this this uh, one time a few years ago now, I was doing something for Adam Jones, and he had a classic muscle car that from Tool. Adam Jones from Tool, yep. 
this is not guitar related, but I thought it was a funny story. Uh-huh. I was doing something for him, and he, and he parked up right in front of the, our building. And when he came out, his car, he had not put it in park or something, and it rolled all the way across the parking lot. Oh, no. Barely missed some other cars. So no, no problem, no tragedy there. But that's funny. <laughs> I've done, I'm constantly working for the Chili Peppers that you mentioned. Uh-huh. And I don't go out and do studio service at all. But for, they're probably my number one client. And um, when they were making this last record, they said, look, you don't do that, but, but you know, could you? Just this one day or whatever. Uh-huh. And I ended up doing it a few times. And, and for them, I, I would. And it, it was just a surreal moment where, where they're, you know, writing and rehearsing and I'm rewiring Please Bass in the middle of the rehearsal floor and they're all standing around playing. <laughs> my, you know, they've got the bass drum at my head. So wow. those are pretty cool moments. Even though it's, you know, I, I, I can't really get out and drive across town. It's like I'm very glad that, that I do that because, I, you know, it's a fond memory. Yeah. What, what studio were they at? A studio called The Boat. Um, I did it a few times this last record. One was the boat, which now Flea owns. He bought it. Uh-huh. And then the other was East West, where I think they finished up the record. Is is John Frusconti still in the band? Is that how you uh, pronounce his last name? Yeah, John Frusconti. Frusconti. Is he still in the band? You know, he's not. They, um, he wanted to take a break. And after a few years, he said, I'm still not ready to come back. Or, or maybe he said, I don't want to come back. So, yeah, he's kind of been in and out of the band. I remember Dave Navarro was in the band for a while. but um, Yeah, through all, all the hits, that was essentially John. and mm-hmm. But he left the band, and they went through a few guitar players, and they finally settled on Dave Navarro. Mm-hmm. And it was a good record. It just wasn't a Chili Peppers-sounding record. I remember that. They had that one song, Is My Aeroplane. I think a great song. Yeah, that was a really good song. And the video was pretty cool with all the synchronized swimmers, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever considered going out on the road with the band? No, I never have. because, Well, for one, you know, when I was a teenager and doing this for a living, I probably would have if I was asked by the right band. Right. Um, I'm glad that I never did because... I'm a homebody. I like yeah. sleeping in my bed. Um, and of course, now I have a family. And, yeah. and even prior to the family, I'm, I'm building a business. And being away is not... Yeah, good for the business. Yeah. Even though I'm here all the time, essentially, I, I get to go home and kiss my wife and kids at night. Right. I do that every night. And that's really important. Yeah. I remember I was on the road with Vanilla Fudge. And when I left my oldest daughter she couldn't talk and when i came back she said hi daddy (laughs) how are you doing (laughs) yeah that was really a drag yeah it's just nice to be home so um you work on guitars do you work on do you guys work on amps or pedals too you know that's something that we should start doing and i've always had the vision that we will it's not something that i'll ever do i don't think that i will but Uh but you could maybe hire a guy or something yeah, there's a few guys that I refer to that I think are terrific, but I have 1,250 square feet here, and every little square inch of this place is, is being used. <laughs> what I'd like to do is eventually find a bigger place uh, and then expand my services, like have an amp guy here. And I don't know if I would you know, rent him space and take a percentage or, or hire him and pay him hourly. It would be great, and it's good for my business, because what you don't want to do is have someone call up looking for service and then send them somewhere else. 
right. Relying on that person mm -hmm. to refer back to you rather than a, another guitar technician. Yeah, it makes sense. And it's also cool that we're dedicated to guitar repair, and I'm even phasing out, you know, building. I, I would do custom builds, and I still will. I just don't advertise it. But I think there's a coolness when that's all we do. We're not going to sell you a guitar. We're not going to sell you an amplifier. We fix guitars. Yeah. So it allows us to really kind of hone in on our skills and just be as good as we can. Right. And you've got just a narrow and deep niche. You guys can probably do better work and just because you're focused on just guitars. Hey, I'd like maybe to get some guitar care tips. I've got about 15 guitars around the house. And uh, <laughs> on your website, you say you wax and oil frets. I mean, fingerboards and frets. What kind of oil do you suggest? And you say you deoxidize frets. What's that? Yeah, so if you're looking at my price list, even below a setup, which I call our most basic service, is a restring. So let's say I had your guitar on my bench for a restring. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll do a general cleaning of the guitar. If it's acoustic, we'll just put an air hose inside of the guitar and blow all the crap out of there. And Would you blow it out of the sound hole? Yeah, and you'd be surprised, or, or like old, you know, harmonies or K's or silver tones from the 60s, you, you put an air hose in one of those little F-holes, and it's a cloud of dust that you can't <laughs> out of there. I'm sure you find picks, and who knows, maybe like food? <laughs> picks, french fries, cockroaches. Oh. <laughs> maybe that's why the cockroach is there, because of the french fries. Oh, yeah. It, you know, it's just, it's like... You know, everybody can, you know, trim their own nails, but sometimes it's nice to go to a salon and get it done. It, that's not something that, that we're trying to hone our skill at, but right. it's it's a basic service. And, and, and after we do that, oxidation, you know, it's, there's moisture in the air, and, uh -huh. and oxidation occurs when you're really not playing on those frets. So sometimes in areas, you know, past the octave on the bass side, you might see the frets discolored. Right. So, Especially on acoustic, yeah, you're not playing on those frets. Uh -huh. Right, like you'll look where you're playing, they're all, well, they might be a little warm, but they're kind of shiny, but up up higher, you know, over the body, those frets are, have kind of a greenish hue or a dull hue to them, and that's oxidation. And what we do to take that off, and you can buy this at the Home Depot, of course, it's 4-0 grit steel wool. Oh, good. Ultra-fine steel wool, and... There's abrasive pads with the same amount of abrasiveness, which is anywhere between 800 and 1,000 grit. Uh -huh. And we'll simply just rub the frets, and we, you rub in the same direction as the fret. You don't rub across the fret. Okay. And I also, you know, if it's in rosewood or ebony fingerboard with no finish, you know, we'll, we'll put the same effort into cleaning the fingerboard in between the frets as well. And right. that cleans everything out. And then, of course, now you've left your fingerboard with no topical oils. Again, you can't use anything coarser than four zero grit. And with the wood, you would go with the grain, so you go the opposite as you would go on the frets. You know, I don't, and because the, the steel wool is so fine, I'm not really putting any scratches in the wood at all. And, and a lot of times, you know, when you play, you know, you, there's just dirt and grunge from your fingers. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> now all that's removed. So really, the frets have no oxidation. They're clean. Your fingerboard's clean. I've tried all the guitar, fingerboard oils, Planet Waves makes a great one, Kaiser makes a great one. Mm -hmm. The thing that I like the most is something called Howard Speed and Wax, and you can usually get that at more of like a specialty hardware store. What kind of wax? The brand is Howard, H-O-W-A-R-D, okay. mm -hmm. and it's called Feed and Wax. Feed and Wax, huh. Yeah, so it's an oil, 
but it will will leave a nice sheen and, and wax layer on top of the wood, and right. it conditions the wood and makes the, makes it look really super clean and sharp. Ah, that's a great tip. And the other thing too is when you're bending notes, there is drag on the fingerboard under your finger. So, right. so having a dry fingerboard doesn't feel very good, and having some kind of oil or conditioner on the wood right. makes everything feel so much linkier and 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 loose and nice. Yeah. What kind of polish do you use on the painted surfaces, like the body and the, you know, pickguard and stuff? For that, I mentioned Kaiser, and that's probably my favorite. Uh-huh. Gibson polish, the Martin polish, the Planet Waves polish, all that stuff is good. And the key really is, if you have an older guitar, yep. don't spray the polish on the finish. Spray it on your polishing cloth. Ah. That way it stays on the finish the least amount of time possible. With older, older lacquer finishes or even like French polish type of finishes, uh-huh. the finish is very porous. So if you were to spray a cleaner or a polish on top of that and you don't get it off immediately, it's probably going to soak into the finish and then leave cloudy spots. Let's see. Can you go through the process of refretting a guitar? How do you get the frets out and what's that like? Sure. And of course, the simplest, you know, refret might be a Stratocaster with a rosewood fingerboard or an unfinished fingerboard. To summarize as efficiently as I can, uh-huh. you know, of course, we take measurements of the guitar before we take it apart. We check the truss rod and make sure it's functioning correctly. Because if it's not, there's a lot of things that can be corrected in the process of resurfacing the fingerboard once we remove the fret. But we'll, we'll take all those measurements, make sure everything's okay. And then once all the hardware is removed from the neck and the body's off of the neck, um, I'll pull the frets out, and I have a tool, they're called channel locks, yep. and I've modified them where we've ground down the tip, so it's perfectly flush on the top, and as we're putting this tool underneath the fret, it's supporting the wood, so the wood doesn't chip or pull out. Right, that's what I'd be worried about. Yeah, and then on some finishes that are a little more brittle, like ebony, in rare cases, we'll have to steam the wood around the fret to soften it up. Oh. If, if we start pulling a fret and we see wood starting to chip out, we'll stop and steam everything. What do you use to create steam? Um, we'll use a very wet paper towel over the fret and a soldering iron. Oh. And we just we place you know a wet towel over that area and then just go in there with the soldering iron and pour steam down into the wood. And it's tedious and it takes a while, but the bottom line is the fingerboard's intact. Right. I never really thought about it, but do like a Strat with a maple fingerboard, that does have a finish on it? Most of them do. And then, and then there's another process for that, and that could include working around the original finish or refinishing the neck. So those are all options that we'll offer. I, I remember back in the day, and I still like the Jim Dunlap 6100 frets, the really tall ones, which keep my fingers... You know, not rubbing against the wood very much when I'm vibratoing. Um, do people still like those big frets? They've always been popular, yes. Uh-huh. We have a, a large supply of the 6100 fret wire. What's gotten popular as well is that one called the 6105. It's got almost the height of the 6100. It's only off by a few thousandths of an inch, but it's a lot more narrow. Ah. It's like that Eric Johnson fret. So it has a little bit more of a vintage width but the modern height. And with it being more narrow like that, maybe it's easier to to have the tip of the fret in the right location for tuning? 
Yeah, that's an, another good point. On, on a fret that has a more prominent crown, yeah, it there's no perfect intonation everywhere on the neck. But having a fret in good condition and the string leaving off at the center of the fret is the best thing going. Yeah. And in theory, no matter what size fret you have, if it's crowned correctly, you're going to leave off at the center of the fret. Right. So it shouldn't really matter, but as frets wear, the more narrow fret will hold the tuning better. I vibrato a lot, so, oh my gosh, my frets really... I probably need some fret jobs. Eric, would you explain what the Buzz Feetin system is, or the, is the other one called Irvana Tempered System? Those are, those are the two big ones, yeah. What the heck? I mean, I'm thinking about whether I should get these. You know, guitars are weird. You know, some chords on some guitars, you kind of have to tune them, you know, so that, I don't know, tuning is a tricky thing. What exactly do these systems do? Uh, They're both well-tempered systems. In comparison, your guitar set up well is perfectly tempered, meaning that the open tone and the octave match perfectly. Right. That's all that means. Um, so, and that's just sliding the little saddle, like on a tunematic Gibson bridge, or yeah. For example, if you hit an open E, and then you you fret it at the octave, and let's say that that tone is flat, that means there's too much distance between the saddle and the twelfth fret, right? And you would slide that saddle forward closer to the neck, right, to, to get that note in tune or, or sharpen a flat tone up. That's what your perfect temperament is. Now, the Irvana and the Buzz Feet and Tuning Systems just go beyond that. And the Buzz System essentially brings the nut forward, depends on the scale length and how correctly the nut slot is cut, but around 28, 30 thousandths of an inch. And the reason for this is whenever you push on a string, you create end tension. What that means is when you put more pressure on the string, it's going to go sharp. Right. So if you had a very high action, let's say, and you're pushing down a note or assembling a chord, your guitar is going to be out of tune. It's going to be sharp, yeah. yeah so having that nut come forward means when you tune open, of course you're in tune, but in theory all the, your notes would be flat. But when you push down on the string, it compensates for that. I never heard it explained like that. Huh. Yeah, so, so just that right there is pretty cool. So Eric, the only thing you do is just actually slide the nut a little bit toward the pickups? Yes. Do you do any angling of, like, the higher strings be a little closer to the pickups than the lower strings, or is it all just straight up and down? Not not on the buzz speeding system. It's straight up and down. Then the other thing that he'll do is, instead of perfectly tempering the intonation at the octave, it's well or evenly tempered, meaning, you know, some of the notes might read flat or sharp at the octave point, but it, that's because they're looking at all frets on the guitar rather than just that one. And what's more pleasing, it's similar to tuning a piano. I think the system is based off of piano tuning because not every C on your piano is a perfect C. Huh. Not every tempering point on the guitar is going to be perfectly in tune, but when you assemble a chord or put notes together that are famously out of tune, they're a little bit more pleasing to the ear. Yeah, like the the G and the B string, barring across those two, I tend to make the B string just a little bit flat. Sounds better to me. Exactly, and that that's really kind of the genesis of the buzz feet and tuning system. Uh-huh. So, huh? I, I don't have a great ear, and like these systems for me wouldn't be super beneficial because I'm kind of the shoeless shoemaker. It's like what you know, whatever. But but they are very effective. Shoeless shoemaker, like you you make shoes, but you're not you don't wear them. Is that what that means? 
<laughs> what that means is the guitars that I have at home can definitely use some servicing. Yeah. That's funny. It's like the you know a guy who builds houses living in a house with no siding on it because he never got around to it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the way it is. They are definitely effective systems. They're well, well worth investigating yeah. and, and doing if it suits your needs. But, you know, here we are 100 plus years with the same tuning system. Yeah. And, you know, it hasn't really changed much. Yeah. Eddie Van Halen never had that on his first album, and he's just like totally in tune. Gosh, I mean, I would read interviews with that guy saying how approaching a chord, knowing that it's going to be out of tune, how he would manipulate how he pushed down on strings to get it in tune. Oh, my gosh. So let's talk about pickups. You can rewind pickups. What do the windings do, and does the thickness of wire or the amount of windings, what does that do? Right. So, of course, you know, pickup is a winding around a bobbin and creates resistance. And is that a magnet, the bobbin? Yeah, the, the bobbin will consist of a magnet. So either, let's say, if it's a Stratocaster pickup, you'll have six cylinders that are, are, are alnico magnets that will run through the bobbin, that make up the bobbin. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, without a magnetic field, there's no way to read a string. You can have a perfectly healthy pickup, but a magnet that's been completely degaussed, then you'll have zero output when you hit a string because there's nothing there to sense the movement of the string, which creates voltage, which starts the whole signal process. Right. And the magnet affects your tone. The plastic bobbin material affects the tone. The fish paper or butate material will affect the tone. That's the tape that you put around the windings? That's what the actual bobbin is made out of. The material oh. is made out of other than the magnet. Right. Um, the size of the wire you mentioned, you know, if you go with a thicker gauge wire, you know, maybe like a you know, 42 gauge as opposed to a 44, you'll be able to put less wire around the bobbin, but it'll... it'll give you a little bit of a fatter tone. So, uh-huh. yeah, there's so many subtleties and all these things add up to what, you know, the character of whatever that pickup will eventually be. How it's wound around the bobbin, if it's scatter wound or if it's uniformly wound from one end to the other. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so yeah, there's, there's so many subtleties with pickups and our winding is if someone comes in with a broken pickup, uh-huh. it's a broken, you know, wire around a bobbin, we'll strip the bobbin down and rewire it Again, we're just focusing so much on repair rather than, you know, building custom pickups. Right. But it's a service that we offer as well. But most of most of what we do in terms of pickups would be, you know, rewinding. My favorite pickups I remember, and I don't have them anymore because I think I sold them with the guitars, but I had some 70s Gibson pickups. I think they had Alnico magnets. Alnico don't hold their magnetism as long as ceramic, right? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I, I haven't had that question ever. Well, I think that my Alnico magnets were really fairly weak. Maybe it not. It takes, I mean, mm-hmm. for, for you to lose gauss off of a magnet, you know, without forcing it to happen, like smacking it against another magnet with the polarity being in the opposite direction, which is your most basic way to, to lose gauss, which is what you're talking about. Right. You know, it could take 50 or 60 years. Now, you might have a pickup from, you know, 1960, and of course it's softened up. And your pickup from the '70s, Paul, probably yeah. you know probably does have a little bit of a warmer tone and maybe a little bit less output. Yeah, some people desire that. There are pickup manufacturers who will make you know a relic or an antique pickup where they will soften the, the magnetic field, and it makes it not as loud, but maybe a little more clear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It could actually take off a little bit of that harshness of the pickup and just give it a nice musical, warm response. 
Yeah, if someone wants to customize a guitar, what do you recommend? I mean, how would they choose a pickup? You know, of course, they do consult with clients, and you know, I do do that all day long, and I'm always a little bit vague when it comes to making those recommendations because no matter how much research you do on a pickup, it always comes down to your best educated guess. Right. You can you can never know until you put it in and listen to it. I've had some pickups that I love that are put into a guitar. I'm like, man, completely doesn't work on this guitar. Yeah. Um, but but you can really narrow the field down. There's so many generalities that, you know, if you're a metal dude, you're going to want a hot pickup. If you like more bite, you're probably going to want a ceramic pickup or an Alnico with a very high rating on it. Now, a couple of the pickups that I recall as the most popular is the Seymour Duncan JB and then maybe DiMarzio Super Distortion, which those are kind of opposites, right? The Super Distortion is a bitier pickup. Uh-huh. But you know what? It really, it's probably DiMarzio's flagship pickup. It's a great pickup, especially for rock dudes. Yeah. The thing about the JB is it's a very hot pickup. It's 16,400 ohms of, of resistance, and it has an Alnico 5 magnet in there. But if you're a jazz guy or a blues guy, it does clean up. There's a lot of note articulation. It doesn't get muddy or, or washed out. It's kind of that holy grail pickup. Whether yeah. you like it or not, it's the one pickup that, time I asked this, they said outsells every pickup from any other manufacturer combined. So We're talking about the JB, the Jeff Beck? Yeah, the JB pickup will, that one pickup outsells the whole product line of every other pickup manufacturer. <laughs> wow. It's just, they got it right. Yeah, yeah, I always wanted to get one of those pickups. Hey, I was wondering, my Flying V, you modified it. I know I dropped, dropped it off to you and Jim, but I know you worked on it. And one of the things you did I asked you guys to do this, build up the wood underneath the pickup so you could screw the pickup into the wood. I don't know. I got that from from uh, reading about Van Halen. And all pickups, to some degree, are microphonic. And if you screw it into the wood, it kind of acts as a contact microphone. Do you recall doing that to my guitar? Um, gosh. That was twenty over 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something we would do. I, in that particular instance, I don't know if I, I do recall that. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm convinced that, you know, if you're into the, screwed into the pick guard, of course, the pick guard vibrates too, but the wood, you know, if you put your ear up to wood, it vibrates. I don't know. I think you're, it, you're, Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah. I mean, the way a pickup responds to the guitar, no matter how it's mounted, is influenced by the way that the instrument resonate but you know is, are you transferring energy more through a screwed on piece of plastic or to the actual piece of wood of that guitar yeah so yeah having it mounted to the guitar really that marriage is so much more solid yep. that it will change the tone for better or for worse and that's completely up to the tone is so subjective good it tone is tone. it is if i wanted to restore my my v kind of I, i'd keep the pickup screwed into the wood but um I've seen on eBay these parts like a, a Flying V pickguard is like, I don't know, 10 bucks, and you buy it from this Chinese company and you can buy pots and switches. Are those parts okay parts from your experience or have you experienced those? Yeah, of course, I can't speak to specifically to what you're looking at because I'm not seeing it, but they're probably crap. 
the, <laughs> the the material that I buy to make pick cards out of my wholesale cost on just material is probably about twelve dollars. So for you to get a pick guard for ten, now it's just a piece of vinyl. As long as all the holes line up, that's probably okay. But Chinese pots and output jacks, yeah, the, the quality is not good. If it produces a, you know a resistance or a tone or a taper that works for you, then right. it's the holy grail. Yeah, but in terms of quality. Generally speaking, no, the Chinese stuff is not good. But the pickguard, if they get the holes in the right places, yeah. Yeah, and I mention that because that's the problem we'll see. It's like, okay, you know, for the most part, vinyl is vinyl, yeah. but the specs are off, and, and it doesn't work with the American Gibson Flying V. The other thing, too, on those pickguards, if you're getting something other than black or white, like tortoiseshell or perloid, Usually, you know, the character and the, the personality of those materials, it looks super cheap. Like, they're half-toned or, <laughs> or the swirl is yeah. wrong, and they just don't look good. But if you're looking at a black or a white pickguard and the holes line up, you're, you're probably fine. You're headed yeah. to game for 10 bucks. Eric, what is a Plex machine? I've heard about these things. Yeah, it's like, you know, a CNC machine is a computer-controlled machine that you can put a neck or a body piece of wood in there and there's a program that tells it what to do and it cuts out the body of the neck. Uh -huh. So under that premise, the CNC machine is, you know, you can program it to, to level your frets out. So from one fret to the next, they're perfectly even. If there's any kind of irregularity in the fingerboard, it can compensate for that. The way the plec is going, they're going to start programming them so you can, you know, do inlay design in the fingerboard so it'll automatically cut that as programmed. It's just like a really, the rep that I spoke to over at Plex said this to me. He's all, it's your best fret leveling on your best day every time. Now, the thing is, I've seen instruments that have been Plex where the frets have been leveled through a Plex machine. Yeah. And there's a lot of room for improvement. Not to say that we do perfect work every time, because of course we don't. It's like going into a really good studio with with an engineer who doesn't know how to work the equipment. Your recording project is only going to come out as good as that engineer allowed for right. it to come out. So if you have a, a really good guy in a plaque, terrific. It's going to be awesome. But if the guy's not running the machine that well, you're not going to get the full benefit of the plaque machine. But it's just an automated way to, to level frets and done right, it's terrific. Do you guys pretty much do the the hand, tried and true, old-fashioned way? Yeah, about about five or six years ago, um, like I said, I was talking to the rep, and I was really considering getting one. The thing was, our levelings are just under $100. For me to do it that way, it would double the cost of the leveling. And if I didn't offer the, the leveling that we do now for under $100, well, then a lot of people couldn't afford to have them leveled. And then if I did offer it, people would say, okay, so you're doing this, which is a subpar job to this. And that's not the case. Right. Our leveling bars are longer than, than the fingerboards that they're on. So our leveler never leaves, never leaves the fret. What is a leveling bar? It's this like laser machined piece of steel uh -huh. with an abrasive on one end and then you know rubbed across your frets, for lack of a better word. So if, let's say you have some frets that are high or some that are low or a fingerboard that has a hump or a valley in it. Having this laser flattened piece of steel with an abrasive end on it 
scraped across your, your frets. It makes them all the same height. Yeah, and then of course once that's done, we have to reshape the fret and put a roundness or a crown back in the fret and then sand them out and buff them. So it's a, a whole process. Right. But that's essentially what the Pleck machine does. Uh-huh. And I've been leveling frets now for almost 30 years, and there's definitely <laughs> an art to it. There's a technique. Everything that I do five years from now, I will be better than I am today. But I do a really good job with fret leveling. Hey, I want to ask you about guitars. What do you think of these vintage replicas from Fender and Gibson? Are they actually a lot like the what they say they are? I mean, are they like the original vintage ones? Are you talking about from that manufacturer? Like from yeah, that? like Gibson will make, uh, I mean, I go to these guitar shows, and I remember seeing, it says 57 Les Paul or Strat or something, and it only and it says six thousand bucks. And I asked the guy, "That's not an actual '57 Strat," and he said, "Of course not. That's that was made last year." But they age the guitars and somehow use the old stuff. Okay, yeah. So you're 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 not talking about the cheap three hundred dollar one that you're getting from China. You're talking about these really good replicas, right? Um, here's my thought is. You know, we're talking about inconsistencies in guitars, and just because the guitar is from the 50s or 60s or whatever your magical era is, doesn't automatically make it a good guitar. Right. And, and that guitar was built on technology that had not yet been refined. So, right. yeah, a lot of those guitars are great because the wood has petrified, it's been played a lot, so it's really broken in. Right. But I think a lot of it is just is psychology, mojo. Um, <laughs> yeah. That, that, that why can't? A guitar be made with today's technology to exceed that guitar that would normally cost you $35,000 that yeah. you're today going to spend $5,000 for. So absolutely, a lot of those guitars are great. They're great wood selection. There's, you know, there's a difference between a well-relicked guitar and a really old one. It's, it's obvious. I can see the differences. That doesn't mean these relic guitars aren't done well because some of them just blow me away. Uh-huh. But there's a difference. In terms of the way guitar plays and sounds, it's absolutely not a given that that guitar that's 50 years old is going to play and sound better than one right. made today. I'm going to ask you about that. Um, I bought a guitar for my one of my daughters, and what we did is we went down to Guitar Center and we took we took about 15 of the under $150 guitars into. They used to have a room called the Loud Lounge where it was actually kind of quiet. Or you could test out amps. Anyway, I tuned up each guitar, and then it was like maybe the 12th guitar we tried. It was just amazing. Nowadays, guitars are made with computers, right? So the $150 guitars, maybe not the hardware, but do you think that they're as good as a $1,000 guitar? Definitely not, because, you know, for one, the wood selection is is, a, is not nearly as good, and, the, and for that price... They're all laminated woods, and laminated oh. woods don't really want to vibrate. And that's what gives that guitar its tone, is just the fact that it vibrates so well. Every backside top that you're looking at is three layers of wood. Together, um, it, it's saying, you know, it's I'm very strong and very rigid, which is terrific for longevity, but I don't really want to vibrate when you hit a string. Right. But yeah, one piece of wood will cancel out the other one by the grains going in opposite directions because they're laminated. Exactly. And yeah, of course, the hardware is, you know, there's a lot of tin and aluminum in those metals, and they're very soft and not made very well. The fretwork on there is 
not very good. There's not a lot of attention put into it. For $150, you're getting way more than your money's worth. But generally speaking, they're not on par with that guitar for $1,000 or $2,000. We should talk about Boss a little bit. Do you ever run into Boss gear or Boss pedals? First of all, when I was, when I was in bands and playing, that's all that I used. I remember my setup was, well, I first started with the distortion, and then I went to the Super Overdrive, and then I also uh-huh. used the flanger pedal. forgot what it was called. The BF2 or BF3, and the, yeah, the yellow one, the SD one, that's the Super super Overdrive. Did you use that was, for solos? I just had them, had them on all the time. <laughs> you know what I did? It's like I, I would always have the Overdrive, the Super Overdrive pedal on, and, you know, Jim Demeter made me a little mid-boost that I've always had on my guitars. Uh-huh. For me, those were really the only pedals that I've ever bought or used. And of course, I don't play in bands anymore. But you know, we all open up cases constantly and look in the pocket, and you know, there's the pedals that are in there. Mm-hmm. And tuners. Do you have any Boss tuners on your bench? I have um, a few TU12s. I also have um, a Chromatic TU10 tuner uh, clip-on that we use daily, whether it's you know, getting somebody set up in the other room to show them their guitar, and we want to make sure it's perfectly in tune before I hand it to them. I use the TU10, uh-huh. or if a guitar comes in without a pickup and we got to get it up to pitch, the, the, it's an awesome tool. They work. Yeah. They work exceptionally well. They're very accurate, actually. Yeah, I love those. And in fact, and they'll even turn off when you're not using them, so you don't wear out the battery. Right, which is a godsend for me because yeah. I always forget. <laughs> me too. Do you ever? see guys pedal boards like um like when you are working with the chili peppers or do you notice any boss pedals yes but you know that band in particular um Mm -hmm. the guitar player now his name is josh klinghoffer Uh uh-huh and on he's got a pedal board that looks like it's ready to explode or fly into outer space or something (laughs) yeah he's got i don't know which ones but the last time i saw his pedal board I mentioned I went to the studio, and I don't really do that very often, so I only see the guitars. But I did see boss pedals, and I also saw a lot of just really old vintage pedals that look like they're just on the verge of breaking. <laughs> really into that kind of stuff, but yeah. eclectic. I've seen boss pedals on there, some echoplex, just yeah. a lot of weird, funky things. Roland makes the G5 guitar, which has different tunings, with the, use a knob to get different tone, tunings. And then they also have the... Uh, GC guitar, which plugs into synthesizers. Are you an authorized repair guy for those? Yeah, what we've done with Roland mostly is prep those guitars and get them ready for trade shows or if they're going out to you know, a high-profile artist that's on your roster. You go through them and make sure that they're you know, set perfectly. I can't remember when I've, the last time I've had to do any electronic repair on any of those modeling systems. They seem to hold up really well and they're fun to play with. They're yeah. dangerous. I, I got to move it off the bench quick because as soon as you start going on to some of these, you know, altered tuning tones or, or whatever, it's like you look up and a half hour's gone by and you should be working. I know. <laughs> the cool thing about that and having the ability to just go to an open tuning is if you're writing a song and you got writer's block, what a great way to just kind of try new things to kind of open up some different melodies that you wouldn't have otherwise done. Absolutely. So, um, what are you working on today and this week? Well, right in front of me that I'm staring at is, is a Gibson 335 that the headstock broke off that I have to glue this morning when, when I'm done with you. 
Oh, I wanted to ask you about that. Do you get a lot of broken? I know my Flying V headstock's been off of it twice. Do you get a lot of broken headstocks? Constantly. Yeah. Most of them are Gibson. And if they're not Gibson, they're going to be mahogany necks, like on, on an acoustic guitar. Which is really soft. And the strats, the headstocks don't break off, but yeah. They just don't. Not to say that they couldn't, but it's, it's rare that I'll see that. You know, the head does not pitch back. There's a, a less of a tension issue, and right. the maple is more rigid than the mahogany. So right. it's more durable, and I think a lot of times these happen because if people travel with their guitars and they're getting banged around and they're not detuning the guitar, yeah. there's so much pressure put on that neck. Even if it doesn't take a blow, just, just a quick, quick jolt in momentum or the stop in momentum is enough to, to break the head. So, you know, when you travel with your guitar, detune it. You don't need to completely detune it, but bring it down a full step. Right, that will loosen the tension. Yeah, I know what's happened on, on my V is that the, you know, the headstock is pitched back. So if it falls on the floor um, on its back, all the impact is on the headstock, and it just goes doink and <laughs> just breaks off. I, I know. It's, it, it's not a bummer for me. Because it pays the mortgage. Right. <laughs> but for all of you guys, it sucks. Yeah, I hate when that happens. So it's a 335 that you're working on right now. Do you have like a whole line of guitars after that? Oh, yeah. I mean, in the shop, we probably have, we get in, I would say, 15 guitars every day. Oh, my gosh. Yes, and we're six days a week. So I would say we're anywhere between 80 and 100 guitars a week easily. Oh, my gosh. On my other bench, I've got um, Dwight Yoakam's. Uh, it's actually a bass, but it belongs to Dwight. That we're, It's a Rickenbacker that we're just completely redoing everything oh, on. Oh, wow. So, so, actually, I'm standing in front of my, my... I have two benches. The guys have a bench each. On one bench, I have a 1960... I think it's 1964 Gibson Firebird with the headstock broken off. Oh, another headstock. Yeah. <laughs> this one's going to be a lot more complicated because we actually have to cut material from the back of the neck and the back of the head to create a large glue joint. The brick was so bad. Oh. Right next to that is Dwight's Rickenbacker. And then on my other bench over here is the Gibson 335 with the broken off. So I got two broken headstocks this morning and this Rickenbacker. And then a pile of invoices that have to at least be prepped or started this afternoon. <laughs> wow. Your life sounds pretty cool, Eric. I mean, just guitars are your life. So, Eric, thanks so much for taking time out. I know you, you've got to get to work. Oh, it, it was a pleasure. I was really looking forward to, to speaking with you more than anything, because it's been a while since we talked. I know, and um, I, I live in the Seattle area right now, so otherwise, I would bring about three of my guitars to you right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's well, just a, I wish I could, like, wheel your guitars back into good shape. Well, you know, maybe maybe I'll ship them to you. You know what? I got, I got to tell you a real quick story. I was 16 years old. I had a date with this girl, and it was my first date with her, and we were, I was trying to come up with something to do, and I decided to go to the Troubadour, and she lived in Hollywood with her parents, of course, so we went over to her house. You know, Her parents gave me directions on how to get to the Troubadour. Uh-huh. I called ahead to, to find out who was playing, but I didn't know the bands, but of course the band was Brooklyn Brat. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and we sat up, upstairs, like they had those wooden benches on the upstairs loft area. Right, yeah. And you know, I'm a guitar player at 16 years old, and I'm watching you guys play, and I'm watching you, and I'm all man, that guy's a shredder. That guy's so good. I, I just want to do what he does. And every time I played the Troubadour from that point forward, I always thought about the first time I went there and seen the Brooklyn Brat. Oh, wow. That's cool. No, so it was really cool. Didn't work out with the girl. 
but I, I really enjoyed that show. Oh, thanks. That was a cool band. I enjoyed that band, Brooklyn Brats. Well, thanks. Thanks for that. So, Eric, you have an awesome rest of the day and awesome talking to you. Um, I'll probably email you with some questions about wiring pickups and stuff like that in the future, if you don't mind. No, anything. And if you have a question about doing something to your guitar, just let me know and I'll, I'll try to walk you through anything that you got going on. Oh, thanks so much. Special thanks to Eric for coming on the show, and thanks to you for using Boss equipment and Boss pedals and all the Boss gear. Remember, you can find out anything you want to know about Boss at BossUS.com. Paul Hansen saying, see ya. Mm-hmm.